So as I um, was, have been preparing for this text, you can see from my title, the title is The Road Ahead, um, because by and large, I think what Jesus is doing in this text is he's giving the disciples sort of a snapshot of what is ahead for them. When I was, uh, when I was working at the hospital, I worked at the hospital as a patient care tech for um, over five years, and in my time at the hospital, uh, one thing I found to be true is that a lot of people come into the hospital very, very nervous or into the doctor's office, very, very nervous. And many times it doesn't even matter what it is that they're coming in for, whether it be a major surgery or whether it be um, a rather routine procedure. Most people come to a hospital or to a doctor's appointment very nervous. And one thing that I noticed was that one of the best things that the nurses or me even as a patient care tech, as I took the vitals of a patient who had just come into uh, our department, one of the best things that you can do for that patient is that you can explain to them what's going to happen. Even if what you're explaining to them is not necessarily like the most beautiful thing or something that necessarily they want to happen to them, there is something that happens when a person and when a patient at a hospital has explained to them the process of what's going to happen that just brings a sense of calm, that just brings a sense of ease. Maybe not completely, but by and large it does. Even as I would take someone's vital signs, and they many times were very nervous, had no idea what was about to happen. Before I did anything, what I would always do is I would stop and explain to them as best I could, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my job. I'm going to do this. When I'm done, the nurse is going to come in and is going to do this, and just step by step through the process. And nine out of ten times, that would be enough that that person would calm down greatly. They'd come down from maybe like a ten to a, to a six or a five. Maybe not completely, but, but it did have a calming effect. And it was important that these people, these patients, knew what it was that was going to happen. It was important for them to know in order so that they were prepared, so that they were prepared, so that they had an idea of what was coming. Largely, what was being removed was basically the fear of the unknown, right? And there is a fear of, of what we don't know, especially in situations like the medical field, just to name one. As we read in Luke 22 today, we see what I believe an example of Jesus giving his disciples a picture of what's coming. This is Jesus explaining to his disciples what's going to happen next, and he's doing so for their sake. And the picture that Jesus gives to his disciples, for the most part, is not a very pretty one. It's not a very encouraging picture of what is coming for the disciples. What becomes evident is that the road ahead contains unpleasant situations. It contains trials. It contains hardships. But what Jesus also does in showing them a bit of the road ahead is that he gives them hope. He reminds them that they have a reason to enter the hardships with their chin up because God is by their side. So let's look at what lies directly ahead for the disciples. Point number one, the sifting of Satan and the protection of Christ. In verse 31 through 34, we read Jesus talking to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The first thing that we see that the road ahead contains, specifically for Simon Peter, but for, for the whole of the disciples, uh, because when Jesus says in verse 1, Satan demanded to have you, then he might sift you like wheat, this is actually a plural form of the word you. 
The Greek word used here is plural, indicating that Jesus is speaking of all of the disciples when he says that they will be sifted. But then he does narrow it down specifically to Peter. He says, Satan demanded to have him that he might sift him like wheat. The fact that Satan demanded to have Peter and the other disciples seems to be, I think, to be a very significant statement. Because first of all, the fact that Satan demanded anything seems like strong language coming from the devil, coming from Satan, coming from Lucifer. Who is Satan that he should demand anything from God and that God should grant it? But we need to recognize that when the text says that Satan demanded something, demanded to have him, it's not to be understood as a command as one given from a king or someone with authority. See, when the Lord makes a command, it is impossible for that command not to come to pass. It would be impossible because all authority belongs to God. But when the devil demands something, it is understood more correctly to be a request. Much like when Israel, the Bible says, demanded a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This demand was not a demand as one who has authority, but a request from someone who, has, who is under authority of another. Or even a more direct correlation is found in the story of Job. When Satan presents himself before God and asks God's permission to be able to afflict Job. It's actually very encouraging for us to recognize that Satan demanded to have Peter. Because we recognize that Satan has no power, no access to God's people except when it is granted to him by the Father. He has to ask permission in order to be able to do anything to God's people, in order to be able to do anything to us. Satan's reach does not extend any further than what the Lord has allowed and determined. And this is a comfort to us. So we know that all the afflictions that we face, whatever it is that the the devil sends our way, none of it has happened except for the permission and the allowance and the the termination of God. And just like those instances in Scripture where the Israelites or the devil demand something of God, so here in the book of Luke, the Lord is under no requirement or obligation to give what is being requested. The Lord doesn't owe this to Satan, doesn't owe it uh, anything to anyone. Yet in each of these cases, the Lord in his providence grants the request. He allows what is requested. Why would he allow Satan this? Because ultimately, he is going to use this the same way he used everything else that he has allowed when asked. He's going to use it for his purposes. We know this to be true of the sifting that Satan puts Peter through. We see the good that's going to come from this sifting, this trial, when we consider what Christ even tells Peter at the end of verse 32. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus indicating to Peter that you will turn again. You will fall, but you will turn again. And when that happens, strengthen your brothers. The other apostles, indeed the whole church, is going to benefit from Peter's sifting, from Peter's trial. There is encouragement that is going to come from these trials. Peter, upon his repentance and restoration, after his denial of Christ, will be able to encourage the brothers, the apostles, the church, in a way that he would never have been able to do otherwise. The hardships that Peter faces serve to strengthen the church. 
But Peter, in a moment of ignorance and in a moment of pride, when Christ tells him this, he responds, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. This is the way Peter responds. And we see it uh, spoken even more dramatically in Matthew and Mark that Peter goes on to say in his pride, and I think a little bit of uh, ignorance and arrogance, says, even if all the other disciples turn away from you, Lord, I will never turn away. I will remain. And this is how we would, most of us would respond, right? We would say, no way. I will go with you even to death, Lord. Bring it on, right? It's like that shirt Randy wears sometimes. Not today, Satan, right? It's kind of the posture we sometimes tend to take towards, towards our, our trials, towards our sifting, towards, by and large, a lot of times, our own strength. And I think this was Peter too. He thought, no way, I would never, ever do that. In his pride, he acted this way, much like we do. I think especially for men. I think men in here know the feeling of pride, thinking that we can do more than we can. This is why almost every guy in the world with no experience in automotives will open up the hood of a car and look at it before taking it to the mechanic, right? This is absolutely true. This is true of me. Like, I'm going to open up the hood of my car and find, like, a plug unplugged. I'm going to be, oh, oh, got it. Done. But it never happens that way, right? Never happens that way. Even consider James and John in Mark 10. When they come to the Lord, and, and much like we saw last week, come to the Lord requesting a place of honor, requesting, saying, Lord, in the kingdom, please allow us to sit at your left and right hand. And, and the Lord asked them a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptism with which I am going to be baptized? And what did James and John say? In, in their foolishness, they say, we are able. Yeah, we're able. We can do it. Bring it on. But what is the cup that Jesus was about to drink? that he is about to drink in our passage in Luke. It was the wrath of God poured out upon sin. And James and John, in their ignorance, say, yes, we are able. It's so silly, but we oftentimes behave the same way. We think we are so strong. We think we are so able in and of ourselves to stand. But Jesus graciously informs Peter that things are not going to be that way, but rather that he is going to deny him three times, not once, not twice, but three times in a row. Jesus tells Peter plainly just how strong his strength is and his resolve really are and just how far that would take him. The answer is not very far. The same is true of us. Our own strength, our own resolve, our own ability will take us not very far at all. But the good news is that we don't get anywhere spiritually on our own strength but by the strength of the Lord. This is why Jesus gives what is about the most encouraging statement that Jesus could ever tell anyone. And he tells Peter in verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is one of the most amazing things. I would say probably the most amazing thing you could ever have Jesus say to you. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. To have Jesus as your prayer warrior almost feels like a cheat code in a video game, doesn't it? Like when you type in the cheat code and nothing can hurt you, you can't die, right? It almost feels like that. But what's even more amazing is that Jesus did not only pray for Peter that his faith would not fail. 
He prayed for the faith of all believers. We know this because it's recorded for us in John 17 and what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Turn with me to John 17, verse 11. If you are ever in need of encouragement, this is a good chapter to read. When Jesus prays for his disciples. And read for me, with me in John 17, verses 11 through 15. Jesus, praying to the Father, says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then hope finds its way to us when we go down to read verse 20 of John 17, where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is us. That is everyone who has ever believed the word of God, the word of the apostles, the testimony that we have for us in the New Testament. Jesus prays for all of us that our faith would remain, not that we would be removed from the world, but that in the midst of the world, we would be held fast. What Jesus prays here is that the Father would not preserve only the 12 disciples, but all who would come after him and believe in Jesus Christ. He prays for us, for you and for me. Jesus is our prayer warrior. That is amazing. And indeed, we know that his prayers are answered. And Peter is our case study, right? Though Peter does go on later in this chapter to fail. He goes on to deny Jesus three times, but we know that his fall was not ultimate. Even in denying Jesus three times, Peter's fall was not ultimate. Though he failed, his faith remained. During this sifting that he experienced at the hand of Satan, it was his faith that preserved him and kept him from being burnt up like the chaff. If you remember, the sifting that would take place was that the wheat would be separated from the chaff. This was the process of sifting the wheat. And what would happen to the chaff was that it would be cast into the fire, it would be burned up. Why was Peter not burned up like chaff? It was not because of his own strength, for we saw how far that would take him. It was because of his faith. And just like Jesus commanded and predicted, Peter went on to be one of the greatest encouragers of the church of all time. It's truly an awesome thing that after all of this happens in Luke, we have letters written by Peter that we get to read post Peter's sifting by Satan. And we read Luke say, or, uh, Peter saying this in 1 Peter 1, 3-8. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. Peter knows all about these trials, does he not? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have a hard time believing that Peter, as he is writing this, isn't thinking about the words that Jesus spoke to him in Luke chapter 22. Peter's doing exactly what Christ expected and told him to do after his trial and his restoration. He is strengthening the brothers. And what a strength it is to know that we are being guarded through faith by God our Father and by His power. By God's power, we are being guarded through faith the same way Peter was. Our strength is not any better than Peter's, but our faith is of the same substance of Peter's. That is how we will persevere through our sifting, through our trials. So this is the picture that lies directly ahead of the disciples, both Peter and the other apostles. But then in the next section, Jesus gives them a look at what is coming down the road in the distance. That brings us to point number two, the work of man's hands and the providence of God in the second section. Jesus, in this second part of the picture of the road ahead, asks his disciples to recall the circumstances around the first time that he sent them out. He reminds them that when he sent them out earlier in Luke, he instructed them not to bring money or supplies of any kind, but that the Lord would supply their needs. This is implied when Jesus says, did you lack anything? When he asked his disciples, to which they responded, nothing. When Jesus had sent them out earlier in the book, they had everything they needed provided for them. They had food to eat. They had clothes to wear. They had places to sleep. They even had protection. Now Jesus is telling his disciples that things are going to be different. Things are not going to be like that. The Lord here is setting their expectations correctly. Jesus begins telling them the very opposite from how they had previously been sent out. He tells them here in Luke 22, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. Rather than leave it, he says, take it with you this time. And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. Why the change? Why is it that Jesus is not giving the same instructions he gave them and sent them out with previously, saying, don't take anything. Everything will be provided for you. We won't have to work for any of it. Well, he's telling his disciples that things will be different now than they were before. Previously, everything they needed was provided for them miraculously. But now they will have to make arrangements for themselves. They will have to provide for their own needs. Earlier in Luke 9, when Jesus sent out his disciples, the situation was very different. By and large, people were happy to receive the disciples into their homes. They were happy to hear what they had to say. These were the disciples of Jesus. These were the people Jesus had sent out and was doing miracles. They wanted to see the signs that these men performed in his name. Jesus was pretty famous among the people during a lot of his ministry. That's why he always had such great crowds following him. He, he certainly had his haters. He had his dissenters. He had those who were opposed to him from the get-go, like the Jewish leaders. But by and large, the crowds readily received him and his disciples. 
They were happy to receive his disciples and, and give them what they needed and supply their needs. But this was not going to be the case any longer. Now Jesus tells us that he will be numbered with the transgressors. No longer was Jesus a well-respected teacher, a beloved famous figure. He was considered now to be a transgressor who was hung on a cross in the midst of two criminals. Jesus is telling his disciples, then don't expect a warm welcome anymore. You have to provide for yourselves. In addition to that, Jesus is telling his disciples not to expect the work that they were called to do to be done by miraculous means. This is another difference from the previous sending out in Luke 9. He was telling them that they were going to have to do their work by ordinary means that the Lord had provided. And everyone who has ever worked in ministry or worked on the mission field knows what I'm talking about. Most of the work that we do, both for the sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of missions, is an ordinary means. It is mundane. It is tedious at times. But it is what we have to do in order to accomplish the mission that God has called us to do. I'm not saying that the Lord is not at work in our labor. I'm not saying that God has abandoned us and no longer provides for us and works out his purposes in our lives and ministry. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the Lord is at work in bringing about his purposes in us and in our ministry through ordinary means. Is the Lord going to grow his church and expand his kingdom? Yes, but not separate from the teaching of God's word, from the preaching of his word and the work and the labor and preparation that is involved in that and that is involved in reaching the lost. It takes effort on our part. Is the Lord going to care for the poor and the downcast? Yes, but not without the labor and the preparation of those whom he has called to serve the poor and the downcast, namely the church. I'm, I, when, I, when I think of this idea of us having to do work in order to accomplish the will of the Lord, I'm reminded of a, of a rather tragic incident, a really sad and kind of embarrassing moment when in the early, uh, the early phases of the charismatic movement, there was a guy named Charles Parham who was in the early 1900s instrumental in the beginning phases of the charismatic movement. And there was this great, what they perceived to be great moment when there was a new Pentecost and tongues had been re-poured out upon the people and the sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, which we know as, as uh, believers here today happens at the moment of conversion, but they believed happened at a separate time. And they believed that this gift of tongues was given to believers and that they no longer had to learn languages in order to go and preach the gospel in foreign lands. It was believed by, these, by many missionaries who were sent out by this guy, Charles Parham, in the early 1900s, that they could just pray and go into the mission field and would be miraculously gifted with whatever language they needed to speak. So these missionaries were sent out all over the place, some to China, some to Bangladesh, some to other places, without doing any language preparation. They were sent out with nothing. And when they showed up to these places and tried to communicate with these people, nothing happened. They were unable to communicate with these people. They expected God to miraculously work so that they wouldn't have to go through the effort of learning these language. In fact, they said, there are quotes in newspapers and articles saying this is going to be a tremendous advancement of the gospel. No longer do we have to waste time with learning languages and other preparation. We can just go and do it. But instead, what happened was 
these missionaries returned in shame because they were wrong. They were unable to communicate with these people. They were looking for God to do this work miraculously without having to go through the ordinary means that the Lord had provided. The Bible stands in stark contradiction to this kind of foolishness, and I would say even laziness. We're called by Scripture to work hard and to use the means that God has given us to not only do the work of ministry that he has called us to do, but also to meet the needs of our family. In Proverbs 10, 4-5, we see this principle at work where the writer says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This is the basic principle that Jesus is now implementing and repeating in our passage today. Christians today need to work hard for the Lord in all that they do, using the ordinary means that he has provided for us, not looking constantly for miracles, for God to do miraculously what he has called us to do by ordinary means and has equipped us for. Is this the harder way? Is it harder than we would often like for it to be? Yes, it is. But this is still the way of obedience and joy. We know that the Lord is at work in our midst using us to fulfill his purposes, but he is doing so by ordinary means. Even as I prepared this sermon, much of what I was doing was very mundane. But if I had come up here today having prepared nothing, it would have been a shame. It would have been foolishness. Because you know what would have happened? Very little. Very little. Before I conclude, I want us to consider one more important thing from this passage that I think we would be remiss if we passed over. And that's the reference that Jesus makes in verse 37. It comes from Isaiah 53, that great prophecy concerning the Messiah, where the prophet Isaiah writes of Jesus in verse 12 in Isaiah 53. He says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The weight of this passage extends beyond just how Jesus was viewed by the Romans or how he was viewed by the Jews or how he is viewed by many people today when he was hung on the cross between two criminals. The point is that Jesus became our representative. The most real and the most impactful sense in which the text says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors is that Jesus became a transgressor in our place. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a transgressor, but not for sins that he committed, not because he ever transgressed, but because we did. That's why it says that he makes intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered among the transgressors so that he could make intercession for the transgressors. So who are the transgressors that deserved to face God's wrath? Who are the transgressors at the end of that verse that he makes intercession for, that's us. Jesus is numbered among the transgressors so that we don't have to be, so that he can make intercession for us who truly are transgressors. Because this is the reality. The cross is a gross overstatement of Jesus' wickedness. Why? Because he was utterly pure and good and righteous. He did not deserve the cross. So when we look at the cross, we think, man, that is such an overstatement. Yet when we look at the cross compared to ourselves, it is a complete and utter 
understatement of what we deserve. We deserve God's full wrath, but instead he poured it out on Christ the innocent. So he is now numbered with the transgressors, making intercession for the true transgressors, which is us. This passage is helpful, and it is clarifying and teaching regarding the providence of God. Because on the one hand, it would seem from this text that the providential protection and care of God is in some way being limited or being withheld. When we read the second half of this passage, we say, well, why would God withhold his, his miraculous protection and supplying? Why would Jesus not just go ahead and miraculously supply these things? Is this providence ended? Is, it, is this providence and his sovereignty being limited in some way? That might, might be the conclusion we come to. It might seem that way. But then on the other hand, we see the providence of God, his care and his preserving and his, his looking after us on full display in a much more important and beautiful way in the first section of our passage. This section that says, yes, you are going to be sifted. Yes, you are going to face trials. But Jesus has prayed that our faith would hold firm. We can trust that our faith will hold because the faith that sustains and preserves us through the sifting of Satan is not a faith that we supply, but is a faith that is supplied by God. That is why it will hold. That is why it will last. You can see this, and I'm not going to read these to you, but go and read these on your own. Go and read sometime this week, sometime today preferably, 2 Peter verse 1 of chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. And see, where does the faith that we have that keeps us come from? It doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. Our faith is a gift from God. In other words, then, the day may come when I run out of money. The day may come when I run out of food. The day may come when I run out of possessions in my knapsack or when I don't have protection over my life. But in the midst of all that, the one thing that has been guaranteed that will remain is my faith and the faith of all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is enough. If we have nothing else, if we have no roof over our head, if we have no place to lay, if we have no sandals on our feet, one thing we do know that we will have is faith. And faith is what we truly need. Faith is enough. Whatever else may come, the Lord will preserve our faith. And if you ask me, which of these two expressions of God's power and his providence brings more hope for the road ahead? For the road ahead? It is not that I would have all kinds of things miraculously provided for me in this life. It is not that I would have food in my belly and a, a nice big house to sleep in, all that the Lord miraculously provided for me by his power. That is not what brings me hope. What brings me hope is that in the midst of whatever trials I face, whatever I have to go through, that my faith will prevail because it is being preserved and kept in Christ Jesus. That is where hope comes from. That is the hope of the disciples as they are now about to face some of the hardest moments that they have ever seen, and that is our hope as well. As many of us have faced many hardships, many of us have a lot more hardships to come. Know that whatever the case the Lord might not supply a miraculous way of escape in those times. The Lord might not supply all kinds of amazing, miraculous things in this life during our hardships. But what the Lord guarantees he will supply is our faith in the midst. 
Jesus is our prayer warrior. He has prayed for our faith. He has made intercession for us, the transgressors. And in that is our hope. Let's pray.